Hello, and welcome back to Fantastic Voyage, a podcast about David Bowie. I am Jesse. And I'm John. Today we're talking about uh, David Bowie's 1971 album, Hunky Dory. Uh, I'm excited to be here. It uh, came up kind of quickly, but we're getting into some really, really good shit now. Yeah, well, this is one of those albums where... uh... Every time you read about it, or you, you know, the author, or podcaster, or whoever, they always start off with like, "Well, let's begin to try to scratch the surface on this thing." Or like, you know, "Oh boy, or, you know, we're gonna attempt to even begin scratching the surface." You know, what have we gotten ourselves into trying to explain this thing? Uh, and I'm almost thinking that too. Like, we're gonna leave a lot on the table. I feel you could do a podcast on the this entire record. Or you can do an entire podcast on the record, you know, right. not just two episodes. There are uh, certain songs that you could do it a whole episode on. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to truncate it a little bit, but we'll do our best. This one may run a little bit long, but I think it it, it, des- it deserves to be uh, talked about in depth. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, we kind of had a, a lot of ideas for what we might do as a podcast before we settled on Bowie. I think we always imagined it would just be one episode for each topic or album or whatever it was that we were right. going to cover. But when we got to Bowie, I think that changed pretty quickly to a side A and, and side right. B. Type. We have side B episodes that are like an hour and a half long, and, <laughs> and that's just us scratching the surface on a single side. Yeah. Daunting task that we decided to take on, but... So, one of the biggest changes uh, for this album is the exit of Tony Visconti, um, who's no longer a part of Bowie's band group, uh, just his overall camp kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't see eye to eye with Bowie on Tony DeFreeze, his, his new manager. Um, I, I think he, I don't know if they just didn't get along or if he didn't like him, he didn't trust him or something. Um, but DeFreeze has now taken over uh, the managing aspect of Bowie's career and he got him out of his Mercury uh, contract, and he's now signed to RCA Records, which is a huge move for Bowie. Um, you know, we'll get into DeFreeze a bit later, uh, I'm sure. But yeah. moving to RCA, uh, it, it really propelled him. Uh, they had the money to, to back him like he's a, a superstar. It was the Elvis label in the 50s. Right. I think that's what DeFreeze kind of saw was you can be the next Elvis. Well, I think he was like kind of, I think why Visconti didn't like him, he was like a bully and a very persuasive talker, kind of a seedy character, right? Mm-hmm. I guess his big pitch to RCA was he went, you guys haven't had anything since the 50s with Elvis. You missed out on the 60s, but you can own the 70s with Bowie. Yeah. Or you can have the Beatles of the 70s. And, and they began to start to treat Bowie like he was Elvis before he had even started to sell. Uh, we'll get into that maybe on the Ziggy tour episodes when we get into how they kind of promoted him as if he was, they sold him as a superstar before it happened. Kind of, they kind of manufactured him. Yeah. Got people to believe he was. Yeah. The label gambled on him. Um, unlike Durham and unlike, uh, possibly Mercury anyway. So yeah, that's, that's a huge change. Uh, it, it makes a huge change on the music as, uh, Mick Ronson takes over, um, writing the string arrangements, uh, from Visconti, although there weren't many strings on the last album because it was all synth. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he takes that, that over, uh, changes the musical direction for sure. Um, and we have a new character, uh, the official formation now of the spiders from Mars, I suppose, although they're not called that yet. I don't think, um, 
it happens really fast. Uh, this transitions into Ziggy, uh, like, overnight, basically. Uh, but Trevor Boulder is now on the scene, uh, taking over bass guitar uh, in The Spiders. Yeah, they tried to get uh, Rick Kemp first before Trevor Boulder. And this was a guy who Ronson had recently played with on a Chris Marshall record called Fully Qualified Survivor, produced by Gus Dudgeon, the guy who produced Space yeah. Oddity. But allegedly his inclusion was vetoed by DeFreeze for his receding hairline. It's kind of... <laughs> So, so Boulder comes in instead, no receding hairline. But De- gray sideburns. Definitely no his... receding sideburns. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, maybe they're not the spiders just quite yet, but for all intents and purposes, they're complete. Yeah. There's actually a, a really interesting story I'd hinted at at maybe our previous episode or the one before, I can't remember. But uh, so, so, you know, Ronson, he was a classically trained musician, right? He couldn't read sheet music uh but he was the classic, I'll memorize it and play it perfectly guy, right? And so he needed a, a kind of a special music teacher growing up. That music teacher was Trevor Boulder's grandmother. But neither of them had any idea that Boulder's grandma trained him until Mick randomly brought it up when they were recording the Ziggy album. Like, hey, do you know this person? You know, wow. you have the same last name. And he went, yeah, it's my grandmother. Wow. That's, so, I didn't know that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, you kind of alluded to Ronson's... Uh, arranging on this album and you know he was classically trained to play piano and i think that classical training kind of comes out on this record you know his, his ability to do arrangements and comes out in part thanks to that training right so, thanks Boulder. there's not really a name for her either we just that story's been told but we don't know her name grandma she, boulder mrs boulder Gra- yeah. granny boulder yeah um i guess one more significant addition to uh to the room would be uh ken scott who oh, produces yeah. the album uh he was uh he was, I guess, introduced to Bowie and through casual conversation said, you know, I, I'm i looking to get into to producing. Um, Ken Scott was an engineer uh, in England since the, the mid-60s. He, he famously, he worked with the Beatles. Uh, he, yeah. he was an engineer uh, at Abbey Road, worked on, I, I think, pretty much all the Beatles albums starting with, is it Help? I think Beatles for Sale even. Okay. He was like the co-engineer and then he like graduated to their, like, by the white album i think he was like engineer or maybe even magical mystery tour he was like the main right. engineer but. so he through conversation with bowie said i'd love to start uh recording and, or producing and bowie said sure like try it you can produce my album and he, i think ken scott said that you know he thought well bowie may not ever amount to anything so this would be a yeah. good place to get my feet wet and you know if if it sounds like shit then nobody will hear it nobody will notice it yeah i think he he said i think like it was something along the lines of bowie started demoing the songs to him and it was like two songs in where he was like oh god like what did i what did i sign up for this guy won't be going unnoticed for much longer there's potential for a lot more here yeah uh and what was the first i think well you will get into it when we get into the (laughs) i don't want to start talking about the second song yet um should we maybe is that a, a segue into it or well i think there's still one guy that we might want to introduce that's rick wakeman right uh yeah we didn't mention him did we yeah the, no. well the, the pianist is a a huge component in bowie's work you know when garson comes in later that's very important as well typically in rock or, or at least in a lot of cases the pianist will sort of just be like this in, additional ingredient like billy preston with the beatles for example or what have you but the keyboard is maybe the single most important instrument on this record. I don't know if you would agree, but 
Yeah. David wrote all of these, or like the majority of these songs on the piano too, right? He kind of honed and, and worked on them and demoed them on piano before recording them. So the result is, I mean, it's it's drastically different from The Man Who Sold the World, which was like more of a band jam album. You know, th- this one is kind of more in like the singer-songwriter vein. Well, when when Visconti moved out of Haddon Hall, uh, Bowie got or was gifted a, I think it was maybe a baby grand piano, and he brought it into Visconti's old room. And it became kind of his writing room. And he, yeah, he, he composed the songs on piano. So yeah, it changes kind of everything. Uh, you can just tell that this al- this album's a leap from the last one um, in terms of, I guess, just kind of what Bowie's, not genre, but what Bowie sounds like. He goes from a, you know, he's gone from folk to rock to now I don't know what you call hunky dory, but it's it's not it's not rock anymore. That's for sure. There's a couple of rocking songs, or there's one rocking song on it, but mm-hmm. yeah. So big changes, uh, which is the title of our first song. We may as well get right let's, into let's it. Let's get into it. Let's drop the needle. Okay, so changes kicks off hunky dory. Um, so this song is. I guess you could call it a retrospect um, of kind of the the dead ends that he'd hit in his career uh, up to this point. Um, He kind of talks about reinventing himself artistically, uh, maybe trying to find a balance between art and finding fame. I've always kind of thought that Bowie managed that quite well throughout his career, but I think up to this point, he was still like, he needed to become famous in order to make a career out of this. Um, so he was maybe focusing quite heavily on commercial success early. It was definitely on his mind. He was trying to write top 10 songs. He was trying to become famous. Um, but he always found a nice balance of maintaining the artistic side of it, whether it be through his lyrics or through his, this, the songs itself. Um, yeah, so I think this one kind of just sums up what he had been going through up to this point in his career. Yeah, I mean, I, I do have a, a couple of, of key takeaways. Uh, I mean, changes, I mean, it's taken on several different meanings as times have passed, right? I mean, the most popular one being the one that you just alluded to. I mean, artistic evolution, especially as it pertains to Bowie. But it is a little different for me. Um, I definitely agree with it being his quest for success. I mean, you, you mentioned some of the lyrics, like, you know, a million dead end streets. Uh, every time I thought I got it made, it seemed like the taste was not so sweet. So he, he's definitely, it, it's a self-reflecting song or a song about self-reflection, but like all, you know, great Bowie songs, it's also very much interested in having something to say to the masses, not just himself it's very much interested in these like generational gaps, you know, look out you rock and rollers pretty soon. Now you're going to get older in a way. It owes a lot to the who song, my generation, not only because it's sort of channeling the whole watch out, you're going to get old one day, or I, you know, the, the I hope I die before I get old sort of thing, but also because he's, he's stuttering the way Roger Daltrey does, right? The chit chit change is the same right. as, you know, why don't you all fade away? You know, it's, it's the same stuttering thing. So, and at its core, at least to me, this song is like a call to the old guard to sort of chill out. You know, the second verse in particular stands out where he sings, and these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consolations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. 
I love this sentiment so much because if you look throughout history, every generation starts to be condescending to its successors. You know, kids these days will never understand, you know, back in my day, you know, I hate that shit. You know, boomers started doing that to us, but our generation is even doing it now, you know. The whole, you know, blowing on Nintendo cartridges. Today's kids will never know the struggle. Music these days sucks. <laughs> you know, or music these days suck. Everything I grew up on was the best. Uh, you know, everyone's always trying to put their stamp on why they belong to the superior generation. And I disagree with a lot of these sentiments. I think music is, is in a fantastic place right now, better than it's ever been, arguably. And it's sort of like my goal in life to never become that old man yelling at a cloud. You know, even if I do grow out of pop culture which David kind of warns me not to do, you know, don't tell him to grow up and out of it. I want to make a conscious effort to look at things and maybe just say, well, I don't get it. You know, I don't want to be pretentious about it. I'd like to welcome anything the new guard cherishes so long as it's not something like morally bankrupt. You can turn and look the other way without spitting at it, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I uh, guess David was probably sympathetic to the upcoming generation as well, because maybe because he was just a father a recently, or recently right. become a father. Yeah, he does talk about kids a lot on this album again. One, like, he, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll get to kooks when we get to it. Uh, on the next song, he kind of speaks to, to children as well. Uh, yeah, so it's definitely on his mind as yeah. usual. We're probably thinking about how Duncan would fit into the future. That's his son, Duncan, how he's going to fit into, you know, the future. He, he finds a really twisted way to fit Duncan's generation into a sort of kind of surreal science fiction tale in the next track, which we'll get into shortly. But yeah. So yeah, this the song changes. Um, I guess I'm gonna start this off with this this episode off with a bit of a hot take. Uh oh, <laughs> I, I'm not really a fan of changes. Uh, there I said it. Um, I, it's just I don't know something about changes just doesn't do it for me. Um, I in the past like I've listened to this album so many times, and at least half of them I've started it with "Oh You Pretty Things." I just something about changes just doesn't do it for me. The intro is kind of fun. Uh, the piano, uh, it's actually, it, it reminds me of the Dizzy Miss Lizzy kind of riff. It's the same kind oh, of rhythm yeah. riff. Um, and then it kind of just, I don't know, it goes downhill from there for me. I guess I don't like the the changes. I see that yeah. like in, in articles about like sports and stuff. Like if there's, if they brought in a new coach or something, it'll start like the, the headline will be like changes or something. Like even Bowie kind of made fun of it later in his career. He said like, oh, changes. That's my motto. I'm the chameleon of rock and roll. Look at me. Um, it kind of has that like shallow inspirational quote from Instagram or a to it or something. It kind of makes you cringe or something. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's very much like the song Black Tie White Noise with the noise. Like, it, 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 I can't get by it no matter what the rest of the song maybe sounds like. It's not necessarily a bad song, but it. I just, and I think this happens to people that are super fans of, of bands or artists, is when a, when a song that you don't particularly care for gets the kind of attention that that changes gets like it becomes sort of an anthem for him every you know montage of bowie's life you get changes and it. it's one of those songs right it's, it's in the holy grail of his you know big it, it's a it's a top 10 in terms of popularity i would say yeah. maybe not popularity but it's it's it is is yeah it is one of his more popular it's kind of an anthem I, and i think i don't know when 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 there's songs on this album that people have never even heard of 
that I think are like 10 out of 10 songs. And this one, I don't even think is a five. It, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. I mean, I'm, I'm being that pretentious Bowie fan today, I guess, <laughs> but so be it. It's, I, I definitely like it more than you, I think, but it, it's still, I mean, it's not one of my favorites of all time. I still think, I don't think it holds the, the record back. Uh, Maybe this one's a, a little bit more fluffy, whereas you, you compare it to like the likes of Heroes or Life on Mars or Station to Station, you know, some of Bowie's more other well-regarded classics. They kind of pack more of a punch. There's more of a darkness to them. This one's a little cheesier, kind of. The Chichicha Changes is kind of very fluffy and cheesy, but like it's maybe trying a little too hard to, to, to be inspirational. I but... like I like the Chichicha. It shows up again, and you've got you've been around. It's a song on Black Tie White Noise. Uh, he kind of he says, "It actually sounds better there. It just kind of suits the song better, I think." Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a piano song. You kind of get a different feel uh, when he, you know, when you listen to this first song on the on the album. You kind of think, "Oh, this is definitely different than the Man Who Sold the World," which is kind of cool. Um, a note on the piano, actually. It was played um, on the Trident, uh, like the in-house piano, um, where the Beatles actually did a little bit of recording uh, in between, I guess, either Abbey Road, Savile Row kind of sessions. Um, but it's the same piano played on Hey Jude, which is kind of cool. Uh, Ken Scott uh, can attest. There's a, This piano is a bit of a celebrity itself. It was also the same piano from uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Wow, this piano gets around. And so like life on Mars changes hate you. Bohemian yeah, that's pretty big. Uh, I wonder if other ones were recorded. I, I maybe those the, are the whole, those are the big ones. I wonder. There's like, definitely going to be more. I, I imagine. Yeah. I one, I don't know about the rest of the songs on this album if it was on that one. I I saw that when I was reading up on changes, but I think I saw it for. I think it's like the main piano. That's cool. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's like an old 18th century piano or something. It's like an 1898, I think I read, was the year that the piano was okay. built. Kind of like an antique. Okay. Right. It does kind of have that old-timey sound to it. Yeah. I think this song, um, I think it's a brilliant representation of David's preoccupation and his fascination with time. You know, that's going to be a recurring theme, not only on the rest of this record, but for his whole career. Uh, and I think this fits into the world of Hunky Dory pretty brilliantly uh but yeah his entire career you know time will keep coming back you know time takes a cigarette the song time you know he'll talk about the end times and, and mortality and he'll travel back in time on ashes to ashes and bring major tom back the buddhist wheel of life he's always referencing that you know time is like this great big puzzle to bowie and the way he went about articulating it it never ceases to amaze me there's a there's another rabbit hole that pertains to time that I have to credit Nick Pegg for leading me down, and that's that he pointed out that David was very preoccupied with impermanence in this period. Impermanence are just things that aren't permanent, right? They're impermanent. Right. And he uses that word very frequently during this early period of his career. He has, uh, well, from in, in this song, it's the in the second verse. I watched the ripples change their size, but never leave the stream of warm impermanence. But he also has the line in After All. I sing with impertinence, shading impermanent chords with my words. I've borrowed your time, and I'm sorry I called time coming up again. He says it in Karma Man, too. A fairy tale skin depicting scenes from human zoos. Impermanent toys like peace and war. A gentle face you've seen before. And after that, he says Karma Man tattooed on your side the wheel of life. 
there's time, you know, coming back again. Right. Uh, so I do think it's really interesting that he comes back to these same themes and reference points all the time, but he reinvents them along the way because all of these songs, after all, Karma Man changes. They're, They're so all different. Very different yeah. songs. But yeah, and an odd like word to be yeah. re- to re- to reuse all the time. Apparently, yeah. he was using that word in interviews a lot during this period too. I don't know those at the top of my head, but. Yeah, yeah it just you know his he's always fascinated with you know the same sort of things. He keeps coming back to to the same things. Okay, should we move along then? Um, I I may have lost some fans uh, after that. I I I, I will say I, I I just don't like this song really. Um, the, it the, seems the, like it would be sacrilegious. The uh, the balance may be kind of going like okay, John's gonna have more fans after this. Well, yeah, because I don't think it's like. Oh, it's pretty close to a five for me, but I'll just say four for sake of argument, four point five or something. What are you feeling on this song on a, on a scale of five? On a scale of five, I'd is give it, it. Is it pass at least? Uh, no, I'd give it a two. Ooh. Yeah, I'll give it a two. Ooh. <laughs> on to what I do think is a five. On to um, the listeners are on to the next show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on to oh, you pretty things. Um, this is a much better song in my humble opinion. Um. Uh, yeah, this song is, oh, I just love it. Uh, it starts off, it's a kind of happy sounding song. He's, it, I get kind of Norwegian wood feel from it, you know, like put a log on the fire and make me some breakfast and coffee. And then he looks out the window and there's a hand reaching down for him and nightmares are coming up and it just kind of all goes downhill. Um, really, really cool, uh, sound on this song. I, I love the, uh, the piano playing, which is done by Bowie. Um, as he talks about on the back cover, he does the more, the less complicated parts and leaves the, the really pretty playing, I guess you can say to, to Wakeman, Mm -hmm. but the, the simplicity of his piano playing on this song just works so well, uh, with the vocal melody too. It's just, it carries everything. It almost sounds like a demo. Like it could have been like demo quality, just the way that it was done, but they kind of, you know, they didn't add to it and they left it as is. And I think it just works so well um, with his, as he called it, composer's piano. When they asked him, yeah. you know, can you play piano? Well, I, I know my chords kind of thing, and I can I can write and I can play pretty decently. I, I just think it, it complements the song so well. well comp- like I, I, the piano notes are great because this, this does showcase his new advanced method of writing. Compare that to the last record, right, with a song like She Shook Me Cold. Well, I love that song to pieces. I, I play it all the time, but... What separates something like Oh You Pretty Things from that is, or one of the many reasons, is that the vocal and piano melodies are almost fighting with each other, right? Yes. They aren't merely mimicking each other like the guitar and vocals on She Shook Me Cold do. You know, everything's going do, 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 do on that song. But on Oh You Pretty Things, it's, you know, put on some clothes, make up your bed, and then the piano is off doing its own thing, you know, doing its own little melody. It should be noted too that yeah, for these for during the verses, it's just Bowie and piano. Yeah. So there's nothing else happening. So he's keeping the time with it, and it's just he he keeps a great rhythm with the piano um, on this song. Well, the rhythm's kind of weird too, right? Because it starts off in a two four time. Yeah. In the intro, and then it, then then he uses a waltz bar to bridge it to the four four. So it, it is simple, but it yeah. also is complicated in yeah. its own little way as well. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So this song is. <laughs> now how to break down what it's about um i get so when he came up with the words or maybe the melody to the song I, I heard it was one of those he woke up in the middle of the night and had to get the song out kind of thing you mm-hmm. know like you know something that john did a lot of with or did a couple of times anyway 
Um, there's a few things that definitely uh, stand out, which is kind of I think children kind of taking over as the as he as Nietzsche says the the homo superior when he says look out at your children see their faces in golden rays don't kid yourself they belong to you they're the start of the coming race you know it's kind of like maybe is he speaking to maybe like a struggle between one generation kind of playing tug of war with the younger generation over who's superior or whose ways are are better well it's like the the superior race, which he's always been fascinated with. That was from the last record too, right? The Superman and that, you know, that comes back. But I guess what happens in this song, right, is they, they come and they, they sort of wipe out, I guess, the, the old guard and they form an alliance with the new generation, right? And is that the children, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is, yeah, it's it's kind of neat. Uh, again, yeah, it's just, count on Bowie to do something weird like that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> not, not you can't find this shit elsewhere. Maybe it, you can. I don't know. It's like all his frustrations with society and the human race from the man who sold the world are extended onto Hunky Dory, you know, and the science fiction overtones that dominated that album, they come back as well. And this time it's that, that lowly human race. They're going to be taken over in favor of the superior, superior alien race, the homo superior. You've got to wait, make way for the homo superior. He, he has such a fascination with like impending doom. He was very much intrigued by this idea of, it was kind of, on the last song too, right? The current guard sort of, you know, dying off or becoming obsolete and, and being replaced by something greater. He's kind of expanding on changes. You know, these songs are very connected in that way. And these tales he crafts are so wonderful in the most oddballs off the wall way. And it's kind of deceptive, isn't it? You know, the lyrics don't really catch your attention until you put yourself through like a proper rigorous listen. The, the Peter Noon uh, from Herman's Hermits version is hilarious. He, he's on top of the pop singing it like a, a bouncy happy thing right he has no idea what he's singing about I, we may have to pull in one of our uh comments from our twitter friends right now uh based on that just because it's it, it fits right now it, there's a it was elston gunn the fourth tweeted out a picture to us of the two stra- the two arms holding each other yeah. and it was I can't remember exactly what it said, well, but it was not understanding Bowie lyrics was the agreement. And then right. it was that guy who went into space. Chris space Hadfield. <laughs> yeah. And, and Peter Noon. Yeah. They, they're just as clue. I mean, yeah. Chris Hadfield understood space oddity up to liftoff <laughs> and Peter Noon understood this song up until the lyrics started, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or at least he, he didn't realize that he didn't understand it maybe, but. Yeah, Mrs. Um, Brown, you've got a lovely daughter, and you're going to be wiped off the planet. <laughs> she, she belongs with us now. You've outgrown your use. Put another log in the fire, and I'll tell you some more. <laughs> I absolutely love the live. It, I think it appears to be live. Um, there's a, there's a version of it. It's like a, the music video for it. It looks like he's singing and playing along to it. It sounds different, so it must be. Um, they did a really good job of uh, in the '70s and even in the late '60s of making of kind of incorporating some live and some not live in music videos. Uh, I think mm-hmm. of like revolution by the, by the Beatles. Like here we are talking about the Beatles again, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not the first time you've mentioned them on this song. Um, either, the, I might right. Add. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's cool how they kind of maybe just incorporate a live vocal with the instrumental or something like that, or a new recorded version. Anyway, this one appears live. I, I love it. Um, yeah. It's a great song. Um, I give this one a five out of five. Totally. Uh, so the Peter Noon version is very significant for Bowie because uh, Mickey Most produced that, and 
kind of in this era, at least in the mid to late 60s and maybe early 70s, the most surefire way of getting a hit was getting him to produce it. But you also have to convince him that it was a good song, but he did like the song. He had an extensive list of hits that he'd produce. He did like The Animals, House of the Rising Sun, Herman's Hermits, uh, I'm Into Something Good, Lulu to Sir with Love, Tobacco Road by the Nashville Teens. He did a bunch of the Donovan songs like Sunshine, Superman, Mellow, Yellow, just to name a few. So this is a very lukewarm cover, at least in my opinion, Peter Noon's version of Oh You Pretty Things. But it, it did at least help put the name David Bowie on the map a little bit. There's that great picture of him standing beside the billboard that says something like, you know, new Peter Noon single, Oh You Pretty Things, written by David Bowie. And it peaked at number 12. You know, I, I, that's kind of a welcome change from all the flops he'd released since Space Audit, even if he's not singing the song himself you know he's at least his name's getting out there a little bit now maybe for the first time a lot of people are kind of hey these songs are you know some some big some big names are kind of getting into bowie now i think it's it's not insignificant at least in terms of propelling his career and that single was well before the album came out uh it was the first song he wrote for the album and i think it was released before the but they even recorded it i think yeah Yeah. i think so because it came out in like the summer and this album doesn't come out until november November or December. It's late. Yeah. yeah, I think like November in the UK and then December in the US. Right. Yeah. It, it makes sense, I guess, that he writes this once again because he just became a father. You know, the next generation is on his mind and how they'll fit into the into this world. And I, I also, I have such an amusement with his ability to do everything like on the first take. You know, like yeah. the way he delivers all these lines, they sound so definitive. Like any other way would sound wrong when... In actuality, this is all sort of like a rough draft, right? Well, Ken Scott talks about his vocal takes uh, in depth in, in a couple interviews that I've seen him do, where he says he just couldn't get over how amazing Bowie was at just coming in, doing a take, and he kind of expected everybody else to get it right the first take, too. And sometimes they'd have to say, oh, can you do that again? And he'd, he'd be gone already. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just, yeah, he was very efficient and I think it it shows in the music because yeah he comes in does it once and that's great and I think if you if you work like that you put everything into that take and you're not holding back you're not trying things out no you, he just he knows what he's gonna do but I think Ken Scott also was saying something along the lines of like yeah like Bowie was really quick and efficient and like if something got to like the third or fourth take like they'd end up scrapping the song so the guys were like really paranoid like, we gotta get this done or like it's it's finished <laughs> or life on Mars Bowie does it exist. in the first take and then the, the guy screwed up twice it's like all right well it's it's done like, right so. yeah good thing that didn't happen with this one Woody said that in his book too where he thought oh shit like it didn't work the first take like I gotta get it right now or I'm gonna get sacked because yeah. you know I'm, I'm working on like suffragette city or something and the song won't exist if I don't Bowie was always on to one thing and then on to the next as soon as he finished something. And little did he know maybe that there'd be people like us 50 years later dissecting every last detail of these records, which are filled with first takes. We are spending more time talking about these songs than he did recording it. Just just today alone, like the vocal. That's pretty, yeah, wow. Um, Yeah, he moved on from this album quickly, like before it was even released. Uh, They were even, they were recording Ziggy before this came out. I think that's what actually secured their deal with RCA. We talked about it at the beginning that it's on RCA now, but it's not until they start recording Ziggy that RCA actually goes, oh, okay, yeah, we get it. Yeah, yeah. We'll sign you. We'll yeah. put the album out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so a uh, bit of a cool down after Oh You Pretty Things. Uh, we slide into Eight Line Poem, which is an eight line poem kind of wedged between some some really cool, uh, some really cool music. Uh, it's 
it's a piano uh, with a really cool phaser effect on it. Uh, yeah, it makes a nice atmosphere. Yeah, sound. with with Mick Ronson playing uh, kind of like a country western style guitar. Um, nice little twang to it. Yeah, uh, sign me up for that. Like that's that's just cool. It reminds um, me of like Oh Sweet Nothing by Velvet Underground, Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones. Those songs have kind of just all recently come out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Uh, yeah. That's that's a good comparison. Um, I, I don't really even know what the poem's about. It's about like a cactus and like a dog or something uh, looking up at the sun. I don't know. Well, that's it's interesting because what kind of animal do you think Clara is? Uh, Clara sounds like a cat to me. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. But uh, you said dog. Well, yeah, well <laughs> I'm a, po- but he doesn't say if it's a cat or a dog. No, I, yeah. I'm a dog. Like I, I have a dog yeah. um, named Elvis. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Clara doesn't sound like a dog name. Or if it is, it's a very small dog. Yeah, because he, he, he doesn't say. He just says it has paws. Uh, yeah, Clara... well, it, it could be an, it could be a tiger for all we know. Yeah, I, I'm more of a dog person myself, too. And, and Bowie definitely used dogs in, in his art. You know, Diamond Dogs isn't too far ahead. But I guess because this sort of deals with, in my mind, what is like the end result of Pretty Things where the homo superior takes over, that this must be a cat because it's it's un, unusual for cats or Rather, it's not unusual for cats to be, like, this symbol for destruction or, like, they're omens, you know, bad things. But they're sly. Yeah. So they may pull a fast one and, yeah, create a savior machine or something. I don't know. Yeah, but I, I do think this is sort of, I mean, it is an extension of all you pretty things. It says it is on the album, right? Uh, even your copy, we were just looking at it, doesn't even count this as track number three. They just have it as part two of all you pretty things. Yeah. I, I kind of look at it as it's the aftermath because it, it's... Oh, you pretty things started with, look out my window, what do I see? Crack in the sky and a hand reaching down to me. Now the script is kind of flipped and the tactful, the tactful cactus by your window surveys the prairie of your room. We started from the perspective of looking out of the house. Now someone else is looking in, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I just, I'm so fascinated with how he, he wrote so open-endedly and, and invited us to fill in the blanks. You know, I have my reasons for why I thought Clara was a cat, but... If someone else thinks otherwise, I mean, there's no wrong answer, right? Right. He wrote that way, and especially on the next song. <laughs> yeah. There's there's no wrong answer, which maybe we'll get into unless you had something. Yeah, let's get into life on Mars. Here we are. We're at uh, we're at a pretty a pretty big song for for Bowie. I give um, up. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where where do you start? It, it's good. Uh, on to Kooks. No. Um, so. I guess maybe the first thing that comes to mind on this is uh, Rick Wakeman. Uh, the, the piano playing on this song is just incredible. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just this this also the string arrangement uh, done by Mick. Uh, apparently, it was he wrote the string arrangement on the toilet in the studio. He went to the bathroom and didn't oh. come out. To, yeah, it was written on the toilet. Um, but it sh- certainly doesn't sound uh, like a song written on the toilet not at all no i wish this is what came to my mind when i was on the toilet i'm usually just thinking about i don't know i wish i didn't eat that or something <laughs> <laughs> not not writing the the like the best chord change of all time like yeah which one you know? <laughs> yeah which one yeah I, I think you said you had something to say about that well yeah there's that uh it was a great clip from the the five years documentary Great documentary. Yeah. Uh, highly recommend. Rick Wakeman's just gushing over this chord change. We'll play the clip right now. And this is the first five years documentary. There's also the last five years documentary, which is kind of cool that there's two. So here's Rick. Life on Mars from Hunky Dory was certainly the standout song for me. 
But it was a challenge in certain areas because of some of the course structure, because he would lead you down the garden path with quite a bog standard course structure, and then suddenly go AWOL. But her friend is nowhere to be seen. Now she walks through her sunken dream to the seat with the clearest view. Now, this is where, a classic example of where he throws in a chord that you wouldn't expect. Normally, after... You'd expect it to go back there. But he doesn't. Go... But the thing that makes it really clever is he put an E-flat in the bass, which just gives it a, a, a bass part that you can start to move on. Really clever. So you've got... But the film is a sad thing for she's lived it ten times or more. Now, after that chord, you'd expect it to go to, but he doesn't. I mean, nobody, only David would do something like that. There's a formula you're supposed to follow with chord changes. You, you expect a song to go a certain way because it makes sense. You anticipate the next chord based on the previous chord. But Bowie had a complete disregard for the rules, didn't he? He goes places yeah. that nobody else would go, places that nobody else really ever does go. I think that happens when you're an untrained musician who also has a, such an imaginative creative process you know you don't care about the rules because you don't know them and you also just don't care to know them and it's very important to because it's very easy to do that badly uh yeah so <laughs> his his ear i think is what allows him to to do that so successfully and so well um yeah the where he talks about it going to to E, he throws in the E flat uh, the bass, bass note. Note there, it, yeah. It it allows the song to climb into something that it wouldn't have been able to climb to. Yeah. Well, it's like I've never I can't think of another song that has more of an an inevitable explosion right. than this one. Yeah. I can't think of anything no. where it's like you just know it's coming. Yeah. With that with that first chord change, it's just something's gonna blow up. And sometimes that kind of lets you down a little bit. But this one doesn't because it, does, it, it, it keeps getting better. Gonna, yeah. It keeps getting better. Yeah. Um, I, I, this is like, <laughs> it, 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 like if somebody told me this is the best song of all time, the most brilliant songwriting of all time, I wouldn't disagree. In fact, I might be the person that says it that. Says it, yeah. And we haven't even touched on the words yet. <laughs> I mean, we're only just starting to talk about the music. Yeah. Uh, this is one, like, if you have a good set of headphones or a good uh, speaker system at home, just turn it up and just get lost in it because it's it's just do yourself a favor it's such yeah. an amazing song um and yeah okay let, let's try to break down what he's talking about here um so there's a i've always kind of saw the first little bit is there, there there's a girl uh who's waiting at the movie theater uh for a date and her, her she gets stood up yeah um she gets stood up and she decides to go see the movie anyway. Uh, but she's seen it before, uh, you know, she's bored. It's, it's not what she was maybe there for. Uh, I, I mean, that's if you take it literally, if you, like, you know, that's, that's my literal take on it. Um, 
what she's doing maybe is insignificant. Maybe what is going on in this planet is insignificant. Uh, maybe this person's wondering if there's greater life elsewhere. Uh, it can't be like the, whatever this, you know, he, Bowie is very, um, like we were saying earlier, obsessed with, you know, greater being. Yeah. And maybe he thinks that it can no longer be found on earth. Like whatever he's striving for, whatever he sees coming, maybe earth isn't the host for this. So maybe he's looking to a different planet for that. Or maybe it's like, you know, um, I, I wonder if I'll ever find this, <laughs> figure out what this song's about totally, but I, that's yeah. kind of where my brain goes. Yeah. I mean, my brain kind of goes with the way the music goes. I mean, it's such a complex song that it's really hard to flesh out your thoughts. I mean, it, it's a very sad song in spots, right? Yeah. But also optimistic and, and a very cathartic song. He creates such a colorful and promising sound it's the type of song you put on where you know you're a bit down on yourself, but you need that pick me up, and it could bring you to tears. You know, when that course bursts through, it's like an espresso shot of serotonin. <laughs> right. I think you you summed it up very well. I would agree with a lot of that. You know, the girl with the mousy hair is seemingly let down by life, so she kind of takes refuge in the silver screen because life on Earth is boring. You know, so is there life on Mars? Is there a greater medium of existence? It all fits into David's world of Superman or Overman and wanting to push ahead and seek that, that something higher, you know? And during the course, I feel like I'm in a movie theater or something. And then the movie, when the, when the course starts, it, the movie starts to just come to life. Like I'm being sucked into the, into yeah. the film by some, like this great pressure. It's just like this cinematic burst of energy like the have you ever seen the Wise Blood uh, music video for the the song Movies? Yeah, yeah. That is yeah. what Life on Mars does to me. Okay, you know, yeah. I'm that's where I'm, where my head's at when I'm listening to this song. Maybe we'll tweet out a link to that video uh, to to kind of show yeah people what I'm talking about. But the, the the movie starts to come to life in that music video, and that's kind of what happens to me when I play the song. It feels like I'm being sucked into the film. I'm I'm you know at like this great big theater with a great big sound system, and all of a sudden I'm just I explode into the movie or something. Yeah. And I, I I can't help but wonder if, you know, he talks about the lawman beating up the wrong guy. Uh, Wonder if he'll ever know he's in the best selling show. I I wonder if it's like this movie is really just reality and Mm -hmm. the actors don't know if it's like they, they don't, they're not, they don't have a clue. They're, they're tuned out to it. Like, uh, yeah, there's so many, there's so many ways you can kind of interpret this. Um, and then the second verse gets a little bit weird. Um, <laughs> Mickey Mouse and Lennon and yeah, um, America's tortured brow. I've, I always, I don't, I still don't know exactly what he means by that. Maybe America's kind of ruined, and on America's watch, these are all the weird. Like Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow. Like is is it like America has ruined art or has ruined something? Like I don't know if it's that. Maybe that's a, a di- he had visited America uh, prior to recording this actually. Like twice, right? Like he'd gone a couple of times. I, I'm not sure about twice. He definitely went once. He went on the promotional tour for the Man Who Sold the World, but he didn't have like a work permit or something. Okay. And then there's a second time where he kind of like meets Warhol and right. And I think there might have been two and, before this time. And thinks he meets Lou Reed, but we'll get to that when we get to the second half. Yes. It's a funny. Yeah. Maybe we'll save that for Queen Bitch. Yeah. Um. And, you know, he says rule Britannia's out of bounds. Uh, is he trying to say, like, stay away from my England. Don't ruin them too. 
like don't let Americanization take over the planet or something. Yeah. Like maybe I I don't know. This is 1971. I don't know how real that was then or not. We're too young to maybe. Well, not unusual for him to be ahead of the curve. So even right. if it is too early, don't yeah. assume it's too early for him. You know. Is he try? Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> is he trying to protect something in the second half of this song? I I don't know. I I, I really don't know. And that's kind of the beauty. I don't want to figure this song out. I I want to just listen to it. And... Yeah, because like. We've talked about this before, you know, Bowie's almost notorious for not telling you what a song is about. Yeah. In interviews, he wouldn't explain anything. And I think that's because ambiguity was key yeah. throughout his career. We plan on having guests later on, so, so stick with us. I do look forward to, to those quite a bit. And the reason that's so crucial to me is even for our own personal show, we need to have these like sort of fresh and multiple perspectives because it's impossible yeah. to even scratch the surface of Bowie's career without having multiple people contribute to the process of explaining what these songs mean and what kind of emotions these songs bring out of you, there's hardly ever a definitive singular answer. And I think David very much encouraged multiple interpretations. He wrote that way almost strategically. You know, the point of these songs isn't to try figuring out exactly what David was thinking of specifically. Rather, you're supposed to just run with it on your own. Not unsimilar to the sort of philosophies and religion he was studying, you know, your own true will and that stuff. Go with your own interpretation because that way you can never be wrong. You know, a universal truth is non-existent. And T.S. Eliot, you know, the iconic uh, 20th century poet, yeah. literary critic, man of many titles, a super important literary figure, he maintained that trying to get into the writer's head is not only what you shouldn't do, but that it's just flat out wrong. Like it defeats the purpose. You're the consumer. It's written for you. Right. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, some of the greatest writers ever be that Bowie with music or, you know, Eliot with poetry. I'm sure many of them share this notion. And then with that in mind, as they write, it winds up being one of the reasons they churn stuff out so remarkably. They know how to write in a, a way that an audience can respond to so diversely and i think that's just like magical when, when they're able to, to pull that off and and if you do it any differently maybe you'll be bored every time you know the the film or the whatever the the art will be boring to you if you know exactly what it's all about if you it, lived it 10 times right and yeah, i think that's you, that's very interesting that it's not she's seen it 10 times before or whatever i wrote it, it she's lived it yeah. before he's so, read it 10 times wrote it right he kind of invents a word there yeah right? so he says lived and wrote in other words yeah but but for the from the <laughs> consumer perspective it's lived it before so it's not only i again he's kind of trying to go between is this is this art is this reality is this your life that you're redoing over and over again yeah it's just yeah, I, I love trying to figure it out and i don't i'm glad that i haven't yet I think the words really only make sense when you think about them emotionally, or at least it does to me. Like, if you start taking them literally, the point kind of teeters off. Like, you know, what exactly is he saying when he says sailors fighting in the dance hall? If you start thinking, like, why sailors? Why fighting? Why in the dance hall? What does it all mean? Yeah. I think if you try breaking it down in that way, you, you've kind of missed the point. You know, if, if you're going to figure it out, you need to be a bit more imaginative than, than literal. It's... The way he's presenting and saying the words, you know, with this song, there's such a grand energy, and especially on that chorus, it's like, uh, well, you know the saying, it's not necessarily what you say, but how you say it. Yeah. I think that kind of applies here. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing, I, can't, I think it was Earl Slick said this about Bowie. Um, he said something about, 
it, it was after Bowie died. He said the, the thing that Bowie taught me that was the most important was to to say something once and then shut up. And it kind of is like when you do something once and, and say it once, it, it has so much more meaning than if you just go and, and repeat it over and over again. Yeah. Like if I make a point on this show and then I say it again, it's not going to give it any more. The credit. second time is going to not it doesn't, hold the candle. It just doesn't the matter. It, it actually yeah. ruins the first time kind of because it's like, okay, we get it. Uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, this song has been covered a lot. Um, it's been used in in TV in, in movies. Uh, there was a there was a show called Life on Mars that took the title from this song and mm-hmm. used the song in it. Um, there's a funny version that Jessica Lange does it in American Horror Story Freak Show. I remember watching that because uh, my girlfriend's really into that show, and she I I never got into it, but she made sure that I watched that. Show. You got to see this, you know. Yeah. You like this song. Uh, Trent Reznor does uh, a cover. Uh, it was used in Bowie using Lazarus. Um, One of the the girls from ABBA sang it, right? Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. I'll yeah. have to look into that. Um, of course, Elon Musk used it when they tried to... It was one of their first test flights for one of their rockets they're sending to Mars. Like, oh, God. Hmm. He, yeah. Good He's... thing Bowie was dead for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think my favorite cover of it was uh, at the Brit Awards, um, the... I guess tribute to to Bowie when he died. Uh, the the band comes on like Earl Slick, uh, Gail Ann Dorsey, um, Jerry Leonard, uh, a few others. Like his band goes up and does kind of like an instrumental medley, mm-hmm. uh, and then Lord comes out and sings "Life on Mars." And it I think it's just an absolute stunning version of it. Um, she's actually got a new album coming out uh, very shortly. Has she released one since Mellow. No, this is the first one since oh. Mellow Drama. Yeah. That was a bit. That was like twenty seventeen or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he called her the future of music. Um, and in twenty sixteen, she would have been like twenty years old or like nineteen. Years yeah, because she was only put on the map. He was always identifying talent before they kind of blew yeah. up. Yeah. Well, melodrama was wasn't even Ray out Vaughan. yet. Yeah, exactly. Twenty seventeen, yeah. he died yeah. well early into twenty sixteen, yeah. like January tenth or whatever it was. Uh, maybe we'll tweet out a link to that performance. Uh, Gary Oldman does a really good job kind of eulogizing him before. They were great friends. Uh, I'm a huge Gary Oldman fan. Um, anyway, yeah, great performance. Uh, probably my favorite cover version of maybe even any Bowie song. Uh, yeah, well, we'll have to maybe save that. Let's do a special episode. I'm just thinking of doing a playlist of like Bowie f- covers. Yeah, yeah, maybe later. But Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there's millions of interpretations that you can have for a song like Life on Mars, right? We can't explore them all, but we'll, we can try to take a crack at a few. One that sticks out to me is uh, Look at Those Cavemen Go from the chorus. You know, is, like, is this referring to 2001 A Space Odyssey? Uh, it, it's a line from yeah. the Hollywood Argyles, Alley Oop, the song Alley Oop. Uh, now, you'd mentioned a Bowie quote on a previous episode. I can't quite remember it, but it was something along the lines of people borrow geniuses steal. Right, yeah. I think this is a great example of that because Alley Oop is like, it's almost like a silly novelty song, right? It's And he steals a line from it, but in this context, it's totally reinvented. I mean, for one, it's referring to something specific in Alley Oop. It's actually referring to, look, look at those cavemen go. Here, it's referring to well, whatever your takeaway is, right? Yeah. 
is it the inferior race? That's that what he, I would think. That, yeah. You know, he's always preoccupied with on Earth. Yeah. He's forever talking about Overman and the superior race and that. Are, are they the life on Mars? And is he calling us regressive beings, cavemen? That's what I think. Yeah, we're now the cavemen. Yeah. yeah. Is he referring to the cavemen from the Kubrick film? Both, you know. And these are just interpretations that we pulled in a matter of a few seconds. I have to imagine there's been thousands of others. And so when you say geniuses steal, I think this is the sort of thing you were referring to because it's just a simple little line he took and now it's spiraled into whatever the hell anyone wants it to yeah, be. Yeah. But it's the same line. But the way he used it makes it have a million different... I, I don't know how he's able to keep doing that throughout his career, but he, he manages to keep doing it. He takes the core verse structure of this song uh, to levels that my way never reached. Uh, the and, song and, that this is based off, it's, it's, he says what... on. The, Ode to Frankie or something on the back cover. Inspired of the by Frankie. Inspired by Frankie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing I don't really like about the music video. It's a really cool look that he's got. That they did it after. Uh, Shot it in like '73. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, they did it quite Ziggy, after the fact. Ziggy's doing it. Yeah. Um, they play like a different version of the song that has it's stripped down and like the arrangement's totally different. Uh, or the yeah, it 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 sucks. Like it doesn't suck. It's still a great song, yeah. but. It doesn't do the the studio version justice, and it's kind of disappointing that like when you go on YouTube and you see like you know the one that's got however many million a billion probably. I bet you it's hundreds of millions. Yeah, yeah, it's three hundred or something. It's an inferior version of the song, and that stuff like that just kind of gets under my skin a little bit. But I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to live with it, I suppose. Bowie could live with it, so I'll have to. I love how at the end of this song there there was a phone. Yeah, that goes off. Like, I guess it was apparently on the piano in the studio. That right. was just it was for like the session musicians to call people up and ask, "Hey, do I have a session booked later this evening, five p.m.?" Right? Okay, perfect. I'll be there. That that sort of thing. And it was outgoing calls only, like no incoming calls. Right? Nobody knew the number, but somebody just happened to call it by mistake in the middle of like the second take or whatever oh, it, was. it was. A UFO. And so uh, Ken Scott, uh, he wasn't a fan of outtakes, so he never kept them. If they have to move on to another take, he would rewind the tape back and record over the outtakes. And I guess when he started overdubbing the strings on the outro of the final take, it was the last thing they added to the song were the strings. When he starts overdubbing them, when the completed track ended, the end of the take before it was still there, right? Right. And it just happened to be like the exact second or seconds leading up to the phone ringing. And so they just decided to, to leave it in. Uh, yeah. Ronson was apparently swearing because the take was really good, and I guess it probably would have been the one that they wound up using had it not been for the phone going off. And I guess he was, at least in, in Ken Scott's memory, very upset, and they had to kind of edit the, the swearing out, but they're trying to get this played on the BBC and that, and it would never fly with with, with what Ronson was saying. But I can't picture Ronson mad. He seems like, I've seen him interviewed, and he's such a late, I guess, you know, when you're at work, it's a bit different, but yeah, yeah that's cool. I do love the way that that phone, like that the outro works too. I th- I just love the way it sounds. It, it's coming from a distance almost. Like it yeah. sounds like you've drifted off into a dream or something. I can't pinpoint exactly what it's doing, but I think that it's essential to the song. You know, it's like the movie just kicked your ass and now you're standing outside the theater or you're not in that dream anymore. You know, maybe you're just waking up. You know, the, the phone kind of sounds like an alarm clock. You know, whatever the world of life on Mars was, you're not in it anymore. And it's now sort of like this distant memory yeah, you were never even in a movie theater. You you were in your room the whole time. Yeah. But, but yeah, listening to this song. Okay, so on to Kooks. Um, 
the next song. Uh, this is a, I would call this a, a great filler track. Um, it's, it's a song that he wrote. Uh, I, th- I read that it was right. Like when Zoe Bowie was born, he, he got was, a phone call. It was kind of funny because different times he wasn't at the hospital. Yeah. And right. Men weren't kind of, that wasn't a thing in right. 1970. Yeah. Uh, he was, list- he was listening to Neil Young and, uh, he, so it, it is kind of a, you know, it's an acoustic-y song. Uh, I can see Neil doing this maybe. Yeah. Um, well, I have to imagine that it was after the gold rush would have been the album he was listening to because that that would have been 70 it was his that came out in like 70 it would have been the most recent uh neil record at the time yeah and there it's a bit reminiscent of uh the horns on a track from that album called till the morning comes No, they're they're not the exact same, but similar. And I think it does make sense that this would have been what was stuck in his head or fresh on his brain as he was writing Kooks. And not only that horn part specifically, but even just the happy-go-lucky nature of the tune itself. It has sort of a jaunty piano line and a quirky, whimsical, lullaby-esque quality to it. It's one of the, like, you know, how Paul would sneak on a, a granny on your knee type piano song yeah, to an album. Yeah. It, this is that. Yeah. He he was kind of really into Neil. There's there's a uh, there's also the track Bombers, which yeah. was written and recorded around uh, the same time. Yeah. He channels Neil on that track as well. He sings Old Man Sitting in the White Sand on that song, not unlike Don't Let It Bring You Down also on After the Gold Rush, where Neil sings about an old man lying by the side of the road. So I think he was kind of into that record at Co- this time. He covered a Neil song much later on Heathen, too. Yeah, and you just yeah. got me that, that record for my birthday, actually. Yeah. Uh, he does I've Been Waiting for You. Yeah, great so that's from Neil. Too. That's from his debut, right? That's from the 68 record, I think. The, I can picture the cover. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's self-titled, right? Yeah. 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 Um, another thing I love about this song is the key change at the end. Uh, it, it goes from D to E. Um, it just fits so well. Uh, when a song has a key change that's successful it adds kind of like an oomph to the end of the song or almost like desperation or something it's like please stay with us if you stay like you know he's kind of has an angst angst yeah Yeah. exactly yeah no Um, i I totally can see that yeah yeah it's it's cool uh this is a good one i play this one for my daughter a lot uh she likes it it's kind of a lullaby not a lullaby but it's another one of his kind of children's songs um, reminiscent once again of there is a happy land. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the kid. It's, it has a generation a, of kids are now entering another happy land. It, it also it kind of has. There's a particular line. Uh, I mean, it, it has a. It has the same fascination with like simple joy, you know. And if the homework brings you down, then we'll throw it in the fire and take the car downtown. Yeah. That's that sort of freewheeling innocence of childhood that yeah. keeps popping up in his work. It's him saying, you know screw it, let's break free from these confines and have fun, you know, no rules. One of my favorite lines from uh, a group that I love called Foxygen is from their song In the Darkness. They sing, maybe I won't even go to work that day, I don't care if I'm in trouble at all. You know, that's the kid in us at heart that secretly wants to do all this, you know, skip work, skip school, whatever, you know, just break free and live, uh, do what you want, or or do what thou wilt, as Crowley would put it, right? Right, maybe Bowie's thinking, oh, 
I've got a new best friend. I can be a kid again. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going through this right now where I'm watching, you know, kids' movies and I'm listening to kids' music and I'm doing, playing with kids' toys and reading kids' books and it's a lot of fun. Like, yeah. I, I feel like I'm, I'm a kid again and I think he's maybe looking forward to that. It's a very fun and it's a very happy song. He's, yeah. You can tell he's embracing being a dad. I think he's he loves the idea of it, even though you know it hasn't quite happened yet. It's funny how we do always want to keep going. Like there's something, there's a part of us that can't let go of that. Because I remember yeah. when you know we found out that you guys were pregnant with with your daughter. I was going like, great! I can't wait to go shopping for kids' toys. I want to go, yeah. go start getting kid yeah. stuff. And it's like, well, is that because it's I want them? You know? <laughs> yeah. Do, well, do I want to kind of relive those memories again? You is almost live vicariously as a kid when you're being a parent. Like there's parts of it, obviously, that you you know you you can't be your kid's best friend, mm-hmm. um, but you can be at the same time. You know? And yeah. You're yeah. And I, he kind of does that that sort of thing on when I'm five. He he does be, he becomes a kid on yeah, that song. Absolutely. Yeah. And on there's a happy. Like he he's written from the perspective of kids several times. Uh, yeah. So I, I'd love to, to ramble on about Kooks because it's a great song. Um, I kind of feel bad calling it filler, but it kind of feels like that uh, with some of the heavy hitters that are on this yeah, album. Yeah, because it doesn't like have the epic qualities of right. like, the, the next song or Life on Mars. or Yeah. It's not as, you know, maybe uh, as dense thematically as something like Changes as well or Oh You Pretty Things. It's a simpler song, but like you said, it's... Maybe it's filler because it's not epic, but like it's... But it, it's songs like this that make this album elite. Because there's not many albums that have like, you know, 11 or 12 songs and they're all Life on Mars. That just doesn't exist. Right. So it's like, it's kind of a high bar, but yeah, it, it's not Life on Mars, you know. Yeah. But great, great song. I mean, this is, uh, not really many bad ones on this, on this record. So closing out side A of Hunky Dory is Quicksand. Before we get into the song's lyrics uh, and, and, you know, meaning, um, I, I just have to say that if if this if the lyrics of this song were, you know, when you get like body text, uh, it's called Liglorum Ipsum, where you just insert mm-hmm. random words to have like for a template. Like, oh, uh, Childish Gambito got his name. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Wu-Tang um, name or whatever, <laughs> Wu-Tang name generator. In other words, if like let's remove the lyrics and and keep the the vocal melody, of course, but it like sonically, I guess you could say, um, this would still be a top Bowie song just for the music alone. Yeah. Um, well, I love how this song opens with a vibraphone. Uh, you know, that that's an underrated instrument that I think should be used a lot more. A lot of my favorite uh, yeah. jazz albums have vibraphone. Uh, one of my favorite Mac Miller songs called a song called Circles from his last album that has a vibraphone in it. Vibraphone's a very beautiful instrument. I, I do love how it starts off with that. You got me that uh, Bags and Train album. Yeah, I, I think that's because I'm into. Yeah, uh, that's Mill Jackson. Jackson Bags. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's one of my favorite jazz. Great, musicians. yeah, vibraphone yeah. player. I think that's cool. Yeah, and this song is like, uh, oh, where where to start? Uh, I guess it, it's almost like conversation piece in, in that it's it's sort of littered with self doubt. Woody had a great quote on this song where he said, it's a depressing song and you have to play it with that kind of downbeat attitude and feel the emotion behind it. The feeling that you were losing and you were useless, (laughs) but get the parts right. I think that's very true. I mean, he's telling us straight up, don't believe in yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always kind of interpreted the don't believe in yourself as more in like, it's not like don't believe that you can't do anything you put your mind to. I think it's more so about belief in in general. 
mm-hmm. and like I, I think you know I, I think people spend a lot of time wondering what they believe in or what they don't believe in or trying to figure that kind of stuff out and I mean maybe it's maybe it's a waste of time well, is he saying here that knowledge comes with death's belief is it do you figure it out when you're death's dead re- right yeah because but he's into you, Buddhism he doesn't believe that you actually die right yeah, yeah that's that's one of the most incredible lines in any in, in music knowledge comes with death's release that's incredible that's um, the next Bordeaux right which he mentions in this song and you know right. tell me about it there you know that's where we figure it all out almost you know that that's the between stage well, I think he says if if I don't explain what you ought to know, you can tell me all about you're, it. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. But I think so. That is the the time in between, like reincarnation, between two lives. It's in somewhere in that Buddhist wheel of life that he's always mentioned. Yeah, right? I think it's like a transition period where yeah. you've you've died and now you're you haven't experienced rebirth yet, but you're in Bardo, which you it's like you experience phenomena or something. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think you maybe you have an awakening and like. If I haven't explained it to me, you can explain what happened to you during that. Uh, you know yes, what I mean? Like, yeah. it's your interpretation. It's your path. It's your, yeah, yeah it's, it's beautiful, uh, beautiful philosophy. Well, it's funny because it this song is, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of bipolar. Like, it's, it's beautiful in spots, but then it also has, like, a darker twist to it in some spots, you know? It's more of like a sci-fi thing with with some dark references. You know, he's sitting in a silent film. Uh, you know, this is that that's another recurring you know theme of the hunky dory. You know, the films. But in this film, uh, it's displaying some almost disturbing images, right? Like Himmler's sacred reality he mentions, and uh, you know, the silver screen was maybe a little more hopeful in Life on Mars. You know, this mm-hmm. one take it has some more darker reference points. It's a really complicated song, and more than anything, I view this as like a a glimpse into the mind of a scatterbrained 20 something year old who, whose mind is going at a mile a minute. Yeah. But there's references here to Nietzsche's Superman again, Crowley, Churchill's lies, Himmler, you know, we don't really know it yet, but this is really a, a man on the brink of kind of losing touch with reality. It's it, eventually, you know, he's trying to cram all of these ideas into performance art. And he kind of gets, he goes a little bit mad in the process. Not quite yet, but it's, it's on the horizon. Well, when he says, and it's one of the most beautiful lyrics when he, when he says I'm sinking in the quicksand of my thought and I ain't got the power anymore. It's yeah. He's uh, he's struggling like to to be, I've dealt with that uh, a lot in in, over the past few years. I I find a lot of the times I, I, my brain goes a mile a minute and I have, I have so many hobbies and so many things I'm reading or listening to or, or whatever is, is on my mind. And I, sometimes I feel like I'm, I can't keep up. And my brain is just spiraling out of control. And I, yeah. I, I kind of have to just chill out and, you know, kind of take a step back a little bit. And I feel like he's in a similar spot. So I've always kind of actually felt I, I can relate to Bowie here, which is something that I can't always do when I listen to his music as mm-hmm. much as I love it. And I don't always find it 100% relatable. But this one I, I, I do. Uh, so it, it kind of has a special, uh, I have a special connection to it in that way. I love his delivery of that line the, the last time through the way he says, and I ain't got the power anymore. anymore. He has more. It's got like, he's a, surrending. It's, it's I a find suffering to it. I, yeah. I was trying to figure out, I'm like, he kind of sounded like Elvis almost, but no, it's not Elvis. Cause Elvis would be more enthusiastic. I don't even know what he, it's, it's, it's him. He's just sounding like a defeated. I've always that, thought of it as he's surrendering to the quicksand. Yeah. Of my thoughts, 
I'm glad that stuck out to you too. Yeah. That that it's just, the last time he no. does it, it's like he's, he gave up. Almost. It has yeah. yeah, it has an emotional meaning, uh, and sonically, it sounds great too. It's just yeah, yeah it's it. This is probably the first take again too. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> and it sounds so definitive. He does. Yeah. He has such a way with making things sound so definitive on a rough draft. I don't get it. Yeah. The third verse is the one uh, that I, that stands out to me. Um, where he he says I'm not a prophet or a stone age man, just a mortal with pretend a mortal with potential of a Superman. Um, I'm living on. Uh, I I feel like it, what what he's saying there is like don't take anything from me. Don't like don't take what I'm saying as as gospel. Um, I'm just doing my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm just a mortal, but on the path that I'm searching for, I I have potential to to be to be happy or to, to carve out a, a path that, that works for me. Um, but then he, then he continues on to say, I'm tethered to the logic of homo sapien. Can't take my eyes uh, from the great salvation of both bullshit faith. And I think that's where he's going like, but I'm only human. And it's almost like he's maybe viewing faith as like a train wreck that he can't look away from. Yeah. And he's going like, you know, like maybe I'm crazy for not doing what everyone else is doing. I, I feel like there might be a little bit of struggle. Um, I, I, maybe not to the point where he's reconsidering, but I, I think he's kind of thinking to himself, uh, like, I, but wait a minute, I, I am only human here, and I'm, I'm tethered to what my body can do and what my mind yeah. can do to the logic of what Homo sapiens, as, as I'm, I've been created as, can do. And maybe he's kind of wanting to be that Superman that he talks about that superior being yeah. and like maybe not to be a superior, like, like a demigod or anything, but he's obviously searching for something that he doesn't have or that he can't, he hasn't found yet. Yeah. I think that's a great take. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's tethered to, he's, he's being chained to an outdated idea, right? He's rejecting Christianity. This is kind of how I thought of that. Uh, yeah. Rejecting the current guard. This is a major motif of hunky dory you know changes oh you pretty things this all ties together i think if you didn't write buley brothers last minute i think this i think you would have closed the album with this guy i think it sums a lot of the themes of hunky dory up uh, quite well yeah um another thing i like about this song is uh he uses diminished chords uh in the bridge um it's where he see he says uh don't deceive with belief knowledge comes with death's release he uses a a d sharp diminished on the deceive part uh maybe we'll play that don't believe in yourself don't deceive with belief knowledge comes with death's release And then again with the ahs, it just, it, it gives it just this mood that you can only do by using chords like that. Uh, it just really, really well executed. Um, I, I love the sound of it. Um, ahs are great too. I mean, does that remind you at all of uh, like all things must pass almost? Like, oh, a little bit. Because yeah. I, I almost look at this 
Like, this song is, like, maybe what George Harrison's All Things Must Pass would have sounded like without Spectre because Ken Scott engineered that album. Yeah. It, I think it might have been one of the last things he did before producing Hunky Dory. I think it was, yeah. yeah. Well, and he overdubbed uh, multiple guitars um, yes. on this song. Yes. Which is exactly. what they did on All Things Must Pass with Phil Spector, who was famous for overdubbing multiple instruments yeah. or the, of the same instrument to create the wall of sound. Ken Scott's almost like the unsung hero of this song because he, he used a great technique with those five guitars, right? There's, yeah. like, there's five of them, which is nuts, but yeah. he also had it so that like they would grow and expand and then shrink back into one. There's a clip that I wanted to play of him explaining that. Okay. And I, we'll, we'll play it here. You can hear the story firsthand. We recorded the basic track. David played acoustic when we did it. And as soon as we'd finished, I said, okay, I now want to record. I want you to play it four more times on acoustic guitar. Uh, because I ju just, as we were going through, I just had this idea of how I wanted the uh, acoustic to, to sort of grow apart and then go back to, to a single one, just uh, various parts up until everyone else comes in. I wanted to be a, a very a moving part of the, the thing in the stereo point of view, which came, I guess, from the acoustics on All Things Was Pass. And so those those moving parts, I think it sort of gives quicksand like a panoramic quality, which is great because that's sort of a theater quality, isn't it? You know, he mentions moving parts. I sort of associate the idea of moving as a visual element. I think a big reason David chose Ken Scott to produce him is because they were familiar with each other and already sort of on the same wavelength. And, you know, Ken could really capture the sounds David was after. And Bowie was very peculiar. You know, he always surrounds himself in the studio with the right people, doesn't he? I mean, Ronson, Always, he, he did the yeah. arrangement on this one, and yeah. this might have been like his first arrangement, I think I read, or one of them, right? Because this is where he where, where he first starts doing arrangements. Um, and it's just the people in the studio that he surrounds himself with. They're always like, they're almost like the perfect cast. You know? He's like AJ Preller and Fernando Tatis. He's like <laughs> player and GM. Padres GM, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah just... Uh, just an incredible song. Um, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll say this is my favorite song on the album. Uh, and I, I like it a little bit more than Life on Mars. Not, not a slight on a, a couple other songs on this album that I like a lot, too. Um, but yeah, this is this is top tier for me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I Yeah, one of my favorite songs of all time. I can't wait to touch on uh, this song's inclusion on the Earthling tour. Yeah. When we get to that. Oh, he, yeah. He performed it during the final leg of the Ziggy tour, I think, which would have been like 73. And then he doesn't touch it again until the 90s. He kind of yeah. had another one of those rediscovering his, his own, his old masterpieces. And he, I think he started the tour off with those, like he, that was his opener. I'm really, really looking forward to the 90s. And that's like a episodes. drill and bass tour. Yeah. But he does a, a, an acoustic thing. Yeah. We're, we're going to do episodes on the tours. We're not going to do live albums. We're just going to talk about the tours in general um and we'll touch obviously on the recordings that that spawned from it but yeah the the 90 the selections that he made in the 90s uh to re to totally reinvent the songs were were great and this is yeah this is definitely one of them uh that he does really really well all right so i hope we've done this uh side of hunky dory justice i know that when I listen to this back. I'm going to be going, oh shit, I forgot to mention this and I forgot to mention that. And there's this part that I absolutely love that I forgot to elaborate on or, or whatever. But I mean, we can yeah. only, we can only go on. I so mean, long. like we mentioned, we could have done, we could have made this the, 
the hunky dory podcast and you know done like 20 episodes yeah you know, an episode per song an episode per arrangement and ep- like you know the, the influence of the record I mean, there's just yeah we'll wind up only touching on this record for like a couple of hours and i mean how much can you really get done in a couple hours but like you said i hope we did enough i feel like we did the bare minimum at the very least which is all i feel is is reasonable enough to ask of, of us because yeah these what, you know <laughs> the these the points that we made today i think are just kind of what come to mind you know in, in a week of preparation um i found it really hard to jot down my bullet points on this because it was getting kind of scattered and i had to just streamline it a little bit mm-hmm. um yeah great side to a great album um and we will be back with side b of hunky dory next time um i've been jesse and i'm uh, still john <laughs> thanks for listening